Went and saw Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade last night at the drive-in, which was a, a lot of fun to return to. Ah, and we will talk a little bit about Sean Connery today, so... <laughs> Welcome back to GC8, where we look at the history of popular culture and popular culture through history. I've got my rotating cast of guest hosts. This week I have from the Hopkins Center for the Arts, Johanna Evans. Hi. And from the Black and Bluegrass Roller Girls, Rosie. That's me, Rosie Briggs and Smackham Franklin. <laughs> so many names, so little time. We're going to be talking about the 2006 film Casino Royale. This is a follow-up on our Bond series to two previous episodes where we did the 1954 Climax episode Casino Royale and the 1967 Bond satire Casino Royale. And now we're doing a fairly straight going to look at a fairly straight rendition of Casino Royale. But before we do that, let's get a background to the year 2006. 2006 was the year I graduated high school and started college. So it was really interesting seeing what things I remembered from 2006 and which things I had forgotten. I divided up the news flashes based on entertainment, which I'll go through first. Crash won Best Picture that year, which, if you, you recall, was a little bit of a scandal because it upset Brokeback Mountain, which ended up taking Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay. But there were a number of people in the film world who were baffled by Crash's win that year. Other major films that came out throughout 2006 leading up to our Bond picture, the top grossing film that year was Pirates of the Caribbean 2, Dead Men's Chest followed by The Da Vinci Code, then Ice Age 2, The Meltdown, and then our beloved Casino Royale. Other notable pictures that year, V for Vendetta, and Inside Man, Devil Wears Prada, Little Miss Sunshine, Borat, Snakes on a Plane, The Queen, The Departed, and Fast Food Nation. The year closed out with Children of Men and Pan's Labyrinth. So actually a pretty great year for film, um, despite Crash winning Best Picture. Notably, also, the Blu-ray debuted in 2006, as did the Nintendo Wii. So some, some things that are still sticking around now. And also in industry news, Walt Disney bought Pixar in 2006. So in some ways, the beginning of the end. But um, more importantly, setting, setting the stage for a Bond picture requires going through significant world events. The UN General Assembly replaced the UN Commission on Human Rights with a new Commission on Human Rights, which the US didn't actually join until the Obama administration. Now, of course, uh, we're no longer part of, part of that at the moment either. President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad confirmed that Iran had successfully produced some low-grade enriched uranium, and North Korea also did some nuclear tests that year. We were, of course, in the middle of the Iraq War. Al-Zarqari Al was killed in 2006, a pretty significant milestone, and Saddam Hussein was executed at the end of the year in 2006. 
sentenced to death by hanging, and it was a botched execution. Other news flashes relevant to Casino Royale specifically, the guys responsible for the Enron scandal went to trial in 2006 and were sentenced to a couple decades in prison, although Kenneth Lay, uh, one of the main people on trial, actually ended up dying shortly after being sentenced. The only other notable event that I, I think everyone would be remiss if I didn't mention is uh, 2006 was the year that Dick Cheney shot his friend in the face while they were out hunting. So just to set the stage for, for where, where we were uh, politically and what was on people's mind, there are a couple other little news flashes that are relevant to the film, but I may wait to mention them until we are fully underway so as not to give away parts of the plot. Oh. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, the rights to Casino Royal have long been in contention. And it wasn't until Columbia traded the rights to Spider-Man that they were able to get the rights to Casino Royale. So finally, in 2006, we get the official version of Casino Royale on the big screen for the first time since Dr. No, since the franchise started. The other Bond story that, that had a lot of rights issues I've mentioned before is Thunderball. This is important because Thunderball introduces Spectre, so the rights to Spectre are tied to Thunderball. While other films have Spectre in them and stuff like that, Spectre is tied to Thunderball. So at this point in time, you will not hear the name Spectre mentioned at any time in the franchise. A alternate organization starts to get spun up in Eon Productions called Quantum. We see some aspects of Quantum in this one because... Smirsh, as we had mentioned in previous ones and from the book, is the bad guy spy organization. But Smirsh was the real forerunner of the KGB and doesn't make sense in a post-Cold War era. So redoing Casino Royal with Smirsh wouldn't make sense. Okay, all that is a long lead-in to what's happening in this film. While this film was still in development, Pierce Brosnan steps down as Bond, and we get the casting of Daniel Craig. I initially was not impressed with this casting, although I liked the idea of going away from a pretty boy Bond to a more rough-and-tumble Bond like the Connery era. I was a little skeptical that Daniel Craig was a little too rough-and-tumble and not refined enough to play Bond. I'll get into that later. The other thing I want to say is, for a little while, Quentin Tarantino was considered as a possible director for this film. So that gives you an idea of how crazy things were getting with what are we going to do with Bond now at the around the turn of the millennium. <laughs> the other casting that's notable is Vesper Lind who is uh, very important in Bond's history. And we've talked about Vesper in the past. In the first version of Casino Royale, she was an amalgamation of Vesper and Renee Mathis, who worked for Duchenne Bureau. So she worked for Duchenne Bureau. We get a more pure version of Vespa in this one. They had considered a number of people. One of the most interesting ones was Audrey Tateau, who you remember from Amelie. 
which would have been a really interesting Vesper, but they turned her down because she was in the Da Vinci Code, which was coming out around the same time, and they didn't want to have a Bond film too similar to the Da Vinci Code, which also takes place in France, etc., etc. Okay, that's it for production notes. Rosie, why don't you start us into the plot rundown for the 2006 Casino Royale? A newly minted James Bond, meaning he just received his license to kill. British Secret Service agent was given this by M. He kind of botched up his first assignment and then was sent on an assignment to find the financing behind a secret terrorist network. And when they find out who is financing the secret terrorist network and how they were going to do it, they sent Bond to play him in a game of high stakes poker. The uh, nemesis was Le Chiffre. Is, is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> I'm not very good at pronouncing French, and it's very tempting to say that in the English pronunciation, but he's an evil guy, and he cries blood, and he has an inhaler, and he's just really creepy and weird, and he made a great bad guy for that film. It opens in black and white, mm-hmm. which I thought was very cool. Automatically, because of the language of film, we know flashback because it's in black and white basically what we're seeing is how 007 becomes 007 the 00 designation given to an agent in mi6 as everyone should know by now means what license to kill license to kill so in order to become licensed to kill and get the 00 designation you got to have two kills Zero, zero. That earns your double O. And we get to see one of Bond's first kills. Yeah, and that awesome fight scene in the bathroom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what we thought was going to be a reboot of Bond, because there's a new millennium, new actor playing Bond, turns out is not actually a reboot. It's the prequel. It's the prequel to all Bond movies up to this point, which I thought was a really cool thing to do. Then we get, of course, the opening credit sequence. Somebody told me once upon a time that Albert Broccoli, one of the only reasons he did the Bond films or one of the main reasons he did it was so that he could do these credit sequences, these amazing (laughs) opening credit sequences, which I totally believe because in the history of motion graphics and talking about opening credit sequences. You cannot talk about opening credit sequences in films without talking about the Bond franchise. You just can't because they are the gold standard. I loved it. One of the things that caught my eye about it is that you could actually see Daniel Craig's face, which was kind of a new touch. Usually everyone, you know, especially Bond is in silhouette. And then sometimes there are actual gold-painted women where you can see their dimensions perfectly. But I appreciated that Daniel Craig himself was more integrated as if, you know, they were sort of easing you into, like, it's the same Bond character, but just a new face, and we're gonna get you comfortable with this idea that this is who Bond is by by having him have more of a presence in in the opening credits. And also, there were a lot less naked women in in this opening credit sequence, and I appreciated that as well. I also appreciated that. 
Now, keep in mind, I'm actually kind of new to James Bond. I never really got into watching the James Bond films, so the opening credits were visually stunning for me. I, I'm an artist at my core, so getting to see that was a total ride for me. I loved all of it. All of it. I just, there were so many parts of it. I was like, oh, wow, I love how they, you know, did that with this and did that with this. And, uh, you know, how they took the, the casino theme and, and, and the playing card theme. And it was just, they took it for an acid trip. And it was amazing. I loved it. I also like how just before going into the credits, you still get the turn with the gun and mm -hmm. the shot through the barrel, like in the classic Bond. It's nice that it sets you up with this black and white backstory, which seems to be both a callback to this particular character's past, but also, you know, a genre callback. That opening sequence in black and white felt very film noir. Mm -hmm. Tracing some of Bond's origins into that time period and having just watched the climax episode of Casino Royale, it was kind of fun seeing that visual parallel there too. Even though you said that that had been filmed in color and just the, the only surviving thing we have is black and white. But still, I like the turn with the gun. And there were a number of other callbacks throughout the film for Bond fans, like the 1964 Aston Martin, which has, you know, like a tiny mention, you know, Ed, that he wins the car in a, in a poker game. But we'll, we'll get to that later. I like these frills. I want to say that I am personally not opposed to naked women in the title sequences. <laughs> That's completely fine by me, but to be gender balanced and fair and a call back to other Bond films. Did you guys notice the similarity of Daniel Craig coming out of the ocean to Honey Child Rider coming? I think it's Honey Child Rider uh, coming honey, out of the yeah, ocean. Honey Rider, yeah. Honey Rider coming out of the ocean in Dr. No. Yeah. Well, and then later, Halle Berry in Die Another Day in the orange bikini. Oh, yeah, that's right. There there was that, too. Yeah, but Daniel Craig, yeah, I, I had a moment of objectification there, which I will confess to. And I was, I was thrilled for the filmmakers that they included that. <laughs> I had several moments of objectification throughout the film, and I'm not mad about it. it <laughs> Daniel Craig is just, he's gorgeous, and, and he he really did a good job playing James Bond. You know, he was British, he was gorgeous, he was strong, and he's rugged, not afraid to get down and dirty and get into a fight and get the job done. And I love that. One of the other things that I liked was that he was manly and assertive, but then still left room for consent. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it was surprising watching this, but like his flirtations with Demetrius's wife they're making eyes at each other from across the poker table and then they have a conversation where he's very explicitly saying like how about you come back to my place and she's like feeling out you know what is this but he charms her and it's she gives like very clear like okay i'm coming coming back for one drink and then in the sexual encounter that ensues she is on top she is initiating he's taking it slowly and she's the one say like okay are we gonna do this or what <laughs> and, um <laughs> it was just a really nice change from from how a lot of those encounters happen in other bonds so it was great seeing that craig could be both you know very very manly and also not a jerk not a creep it was yeah what i liked about daniel craig's performance and this movie overall which i'm gonna come out and say it I think this is one of the best Bond films ever made. I really liked it uh, because it was a back-to-basics Bond. 
it showed in a movie, there really wasn't anything too crazy. Everything was gunfights, knife fights, fist fights, and car chases. That's all you got in terms of action. There was no sci-fi gadgetry. There was no nothing too weird. It was all very, very real. All of it, you could imagine it actually happening. I really like that, especially in a prequel, because this is not yet Bond trying to save the world. This is Bond sent on a mission that's very, very modest in terms of what he will be called on to do in later films and books. And part of that also has to do with Le Chiffre. Now, in the book, Le Chiffre is a agent of Smirsch, and he's a Russian agent, provocateur or something like that in France, um, using labor unions and such to undermine Western values and capitalism. And Bond sort of represents the opposite of that, using Western money, which that alone is a little weird. I don't know that spy agencies would trust an agent with millions of dollars to gamble with. But, you know, who knows? We've seen American Hustle and they do do crazy stuff. So basically, they're trying to discredit him through gambling, which sounds crazy in a post-Cold War era. But you have to understand, having grown up in the Cold War, I remember when things like Olympic Games, it was so important to beat the Russians in the Olympics. Yeah. And the Russians had to, they were willing to dope athletes and stuff like that to beat the West because it would show that state-sponsored athletes and therefore communism was better than privately funded athletes and therefore capitalism. It's crazy to think about this nowadays, but that was literally how the Cold War played out in various arenas. Mm -hmm. So that was the plot of the book. Now, that comes out a little in our past Casino Royale viewing, but not a lot. And Le Chiffre's mission is always kind of a little bit weird and hard to understand. This movie did something that I thought was great. It went beyond the book to give a backstory to Le Chiffre. So immediately after that opening, we moved to Uganda, where uh, there's a certain Mr. White, mm -hmm. who is trying to supply terrorists with arms. Now we realize how in deep Le Chiffre is to international money interests and how, like, by losing their money, he's in big trouble. Right? Did anyone feel that, that Le Chiffre made a lot more sense in this film? Yeah. Well, this is why I mentioned the piece about Enron. He loses the money because he's doing some shady stock market stuff on the side. And, you know, Enron was more in the insider trading direction. But just thinking about how the crash happened in 2008 because there were these industries that people were expecting to do really well and then it all fall fell apart and some people bet against those industries and and made bank you know as illustrated in um the big short but it was interesting to see see that little piece of it work its way in also this you know idea that Le Chiffre, as a modern version of this villain, is, you know, not just gambling at the card table, but also gambling in the stock market, which I, you know, raises the stakes for how much money he could be losing and what kinds of real world effect that would have on everyone else. Yeah, I think that that's a good point. Another thing I liked about this is we're getting to see how Bond became Bond. One of the characters from the book that made it into this 
that wasn't in previous versions was the Greek shipping magnet. He's just another player in the game in the book. In this, he's, again, another player in the game, but he also wagers his Aston Martin. And it. so now we, we find out how Bond got the Aston Martin, which is kind of kind of cool. Now, the game they play in this is not actually Baccarat, which is what we had in the book, what we had in the first TV version of Casino Royale, and what we had in the 67 version of Casino Royale. And this is Texas Hold'em, which, uh, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, why do you think they changed it? This was one of one of the facts that I thought I would save for later, but I wanted to look up and see what the World Series of Poker was like in 2006. And as it happens, that year in 2006 is still the high, the largest pool in the history of World Series of Poker. And the total prize pool that year was $82,512,162. Wow. Crazy amount. And the the first prize that, you know, the winner, Jamie Gold, won was $12 million. And the other 10 dudes behind him all became millionaires also. So huge, huge amounts of winnings. There was a larger win a few years down the line. The highest amount that someone's won in the World Series is now up to $18 million. But this held the record for a while, and it's still the record for the largest total pool. As it happens, the hand that he won with... He had a pair he won with a pair of queens and the queen was in the flop and his opponent had a pair of tens in his hand but got nothing off of what was on the board. I think that what happened here was two things. One, not as many people know Baccarat <laughs> and like everybody knows Texas Hold'em. Yeah. So they didn't have to explain the rules. As we remember in the 1954 version, they had a narrator explain the rules before it started. In the book, Fleming gets around this by having Bond teach Vesper how to play. Oh, okay. That actually makes sense, but this isn't a book, so we don't have that option. That, that would be boring on screen. So I think they went with Texas Hold'em because more people knew it. Also because, yeah, it was super popular in the mid-2000s and, you know, with that biggest pot ever and stuff like that. Interestingly, in the book, Bond also wins with two queens. Baccarat is a game like 21, except in Baccarat, you're trying to get nine. Okay. Face cards, Jack, Queen, King are worth zero. So you got two that are blind to everybody but you, where you can see what they are, but nobody else can. And then you get your faced up card on top of that. Well, his two face down cards were queens which were worth zero and then he got a nine so that so he also won hmm. with two queens in in baccarat so they preserved that little detail for card players and whatnot <laughs> and super geeks but that's what we are on this show so <laughs> yeah no that's crazy one of the things i liked about this film is that it dives into the poker playing almost immediately as soon as bond meets up with demetrios they're playing cards. And I feel like in the other two adaptations, there was a lot of buildup and a lot of maneuvering around before you get to the thrill of the card playing. And this time it just throws you into the deep end of the pool almost immediately. And then it's 
cards for most of the movie punctuated by action. But I really liked that sense of like, okay, we're just going to get started with this right away. Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool that Bond not only got his car, but he got his girl. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay, Bond's just a total badass. We like him. So that yeah that that was a that was a trip and just to see the look on on uh, on Demetrius's face when he got his car he was like oh okay great <laughs> <laughs> you're stuck on the island dude sorry <laughs> so Eric just to go back to what you had said before about um, this Bond being you know a little bit grittier and more in the real world um, I think some of it is that this is the first Bond film to really address a post 9/11 world. Die Another Day came out in 2002, but the plot of that film about, you know, conflict diamonds being stolen by a North Korean guy who had a grudge against him, but then like did a face-off scenario with somebody else. And then there's a battle in an ice palace and the <laughs> car turns invisible. And just like, like the amount of ridiculous sci-fi doesn't quite match up with what the world was like in a post 9-11 world of the sense of it's not necessarily going to be some crazy mastermind behind everything it's actually going to be lots of little guys that are all part of a larger system and i think one of the reasons why this bond ends up being more visceral and the action is you know more believable is because he's fighting a lot of little guys throughout the film i confess this is now maybe the seventh or eighth time i've seen this movie and it's only now that i'm starting to really get a sense of who is who but i remember the first time i saw this film being kind of disoriented of wait Who's that guy? Who's he working for? Wait, why are we chasing this new guy who's dressed as a security officer at the airport? Where did we run into him? And then like, oh, there's someone else who works for Le Sheep and the bodies are in the trunk of that guy's car. And there's just like a ton of little bad guys in this film, which I think contributes to that sense of real world action, but also does make the plot, I think, a little bit trickier to follow. I don't know if anyone else had that feeling of, wait, who's that? <laughs> Actually, uh, full confession, I always Google the movie so that I have the cast of characters and who's playing them so I can refer to who is who when I'm taking notes when I'm watching the movie. And that really helped me follow along, um, especially being newer to the Bond franchise. I really enjoyed the gritty aspect of all of the fight scenes and the chase scenes in the film. It almost had a, a Jackie Chan use whatever resources are at hand kind of aspect to it. You know what I mean? Like he used everything, anything that was available, he was going to use it to kill you or hurt you, you know, to get to from point A to point B. The one scene where they just kept like when he just kept climbing and climbing and climbing, um, uh, chasing uh, the one guy. Oh my gosh, I can't remember his name right now. The bomb maker. The bomb maker. Yes, yeah. the bomb maker. So he was chasing after the bomb maker. He's climbing up, you know, he's climbing up steel contraptions and and then and then jumping back down. I just don't even understand how both of them basically survived that <laughs> until the very end of that of that chase scene. I mean sure in real life it would be unrealistic but when you watch that film it looks totally possible and i love that well i don't know i've seen a lot of those um extreme climbing videos you know it's quite Mm -hmm. a um it's like a trend on on social media particularly in 
in Russia and around the world, but in particular in, in Eastern Europe, there's this trend to climb tall buildings and take selfies and, and stuff like that. I forget what, what, what it's called. It's crazy insane. They climb cranes all the time and, and do yoga on top of them. And oh, you, tell me you guys have seen this or are familiar with this. No, but I, I'm afraid to go look it up. I have a heights thing. It is <laughs> terrifying. It is terrifying. It's um, some kind of urban exploring. I forget what it's called. I'm sure someone will write it, write in and tell us what it's called. But yeah, uh, it's a thing. It's, Trust me, it's a it's a thing. It's, it's a not real parkour. Thing. It's it's something else, and I can't remember it. But you know what? I think that if James Bond were to play an America Ninja Warrior, he would be the champion. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Eastern Europe, the next thing I wanted to mention is the setting. Casino Royale is different than a lot of Bond films in that the setting is literally in the title. And Casino Royale, up till now, in previous versions, has been a casino in a fictional town in northern France. And in they sort of changed it to Monte Carlo or something like that in the first Casino Royale the black and white TV version, I, if I recall. And it, it was total, who knows with 67, they just sort of glossed over all that. Um, <laughs> the, the casino was like an afterthought in that film. In this, they, they relocated to Montenegro. Mm -hmm. Why? No idea. No clue. None. No theories. No theories. I only think that it maybe it was an exotic location and sort of maybe a little less felt a little less controlled than France would be, a, you know, a, a little more anything goes kind of place. That's all I can think of. I wonder if some of it is that at the at the time of the original, France would have still been a place of some, you know, political intrigue, you know, as a you know, a post-war location, you know, it's the sort of place where bad guys, you know, black market connections, like that kind of stuff might have still been hanging around. And especially with Germany still divided, you know, like France would have probably seemed more like a, you know, a place where you could run into some shady people. And I think now in the early 2000s, like, you know, France is, the is you know, our not political enemy, but, you know, the, like, I don't know if you guys remember Freedom Fries. Oh, but, yeah. You know, like, like France sort of like is kind of like famous for not being involved at the time that this film was made of like not being, you know, politically engaged and and, you know, willing to get their hands dirty, I guess. And so I think, you know, that might be part of it that, you know, in addition to it being a very civilized country in, in 2006 and not, you know, the place where you'd run into a high stakes poker game. It also just might not be as politically interesting or, you know, up for question as Montenegro would be. Is Montenegro in the EU? Does anyone know? Hilariously, I think I was looking this up and maybe I should have mentioned this in my recap, but I think 2006 was the year that Serbia and Montenegro like officially split up and became independent countries in 2006 so <laughs> i probably should have mentioned that um okay and this film was released in november of 2006 interesting so maybe there's a reason right there it was in the in news, the news. Yeah. yeah it was uh it was much like texas hold'em 
it was a thing that was happening then. Yeah, so, it was easy to reference in that period of time. Nowadays, I think if you were to use it, I don't think I don't think people would they'd be like, "Where's that?" You know, but back then they'd be like, "Oh, I heard of that place in the news." Yeah, it's funny. I didn't put this in, you know, like I I read through all the news and then came up with like, "Here's my top 10 list that I'm going to include in the podcast." And this did not make the top 10. And then I watched the film afterwards and forgot to put this put this back in there. Um I'd actually I had forgotten that the casino scene takes place in Montenegro in part because I I don't think the location of the country ever really comes up in terms of a plot point. I remember I remember the scene in Venice and I remember the chase scene on the scaffolding a lot more in terms of, you know, an actual setting other than like there is some like charming cobblestone streets and, you know, vaguely Eastern European looking houses at, at some point in one of the chase scenes where Bond, you know, continues to, you know, chase after cars on foot. It's one of, my, <laughs> one of my favorite things about this film is the number of these chase scenes that start with Bond running after the car. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk for a second about Felix Leiter. He saves Bond's butt in this, and he appears throughout the Bond canon as Bond's equivalent in the CIA. And the a lot of people have suggested, you know, there's been so many Bonds that James Bond, and they even suggest this in Casino Royale 1967, that James Bond is just a code name that there are a bunch of different men who have been James Bond. I don't buy that. I think 007 is a code name they assigned to him in the British Secret Service, but that James Bond, it's the same guy. Even though there are different actors playing it, it's the same guy. And the way that we know this is, uh, again, I'm going to talk about uh, Tracy Bond was killed and in... Um, I believe on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And in the very next film, that was uh, George Lazenby played uh, uh, Bond. And in the very next film, Sean Connery comes back for Diamonds Are Forever. I think it was Diamonds Are Forever. And it opens with him pissed off and looking for Blofeld because they killed, they killed uh, tr his wife. Those are two different actors. So I believe it's, you know, and I think this is pretty commonly accepted among Bond fans that there is one James Bond. There is one guy who is James Bond. It just happens to be played by different actors over time. The reason I bring this up is because I have always long held the opposite idea about Felix Leiter. Felix Leiter is played by a ton of different people. Sometimes he's black. I like he is in this one. Sometimes he's white. Uh, Jack Lord played him in one one of the the I think Thunderball or one of the the movies. It, he's been played by so many different actors that look nothing like each other. I posit that Felix Leiter is the code name that the CIA uses with MI6 to be like this is your guy. This is your contact. If he uses the name Felix Leiter. It's your CIA guy. It's our CIA guy for you, you know? Interesting. I don't think it's this film where he gets, like, the U.S. 
political situation complicates his character. I mean, like, I think that's, it's something that's sort of interesting about the Felix character in the earlier Bonds is the fact that the CIA is this really shady organization that the public has bad feelings about. Like, that doesn't really come in until... It's actually right around the time of Casino Royale that that sense of like, oh, the CIA, they torture people (laughs) and and we don't feel okay about that anymore. Um, One of the facts that I looked up is that um, 2006 was the year that the soldiers who tortured the prisoners in Abu Ghraib were dishonorably discharged. So I think in the bonds after this one, the idea that like the British Secret Service are... You know, like Bond is a blunt force tool and there are a lot of bodies in his wake, but, you know, he's not breaking the Geneva Conventions. Like that's, you know, you sort of get that sense. And I don't feel like it happens in this film, but in but I feel like Felix, played by Jeffrey Wright, gets even more interesting and more complicated in the subsequent films when that side of like the CIA maybe shouldn't be trusted or the CIA might not be the good guys like that sort of complication in his character i th- i think get makes him even more interesting mm-hmm. uh, okay we've danced around it too long we got to talk about vesper johanna had mentioned vesper is a whole deal so i am going to drop this in your lap and you get to break down and analyze and tell us everything you can or your thoughts about the character of Vesper Lind. One of the things I like about her character is you immediately get the sense that she can give it as well as she takes it. And the Sherlock Holmes style flirtation between her and Bond on the train establishes that she is a complicated person with her own history and her own ambitions and she's not going to be immediately swept off her feet just by the force of Bond's personality and um, perfectly sculpted ass as they say in the film (laughs) and it's really great to see her established that way and throughout the film you know not being afraid to say here's me in character being angry at you for blowing that hand you know like just you know that she's not trying to be nice she's not trying to be likable for Bond she has her own goals I think that's what makes her betrayal so devastating uh, is you you feel like she's a real person and that you also like her as an audience member and you also trust her and Mm -hmm. when she turns out to maybe be exactly what bond imagines all women are then it hurts because you you wanted her to prove him wrong you you wanted her to prove you know that women aren't just meant to be you know used and tossed aside and i the film doesn't do that to her like they don't they don't really toss her aside i feel like she goes out on her own terms which is awesome but i did feel like my sense of being betrayed by her was connected to how hopeful i was that she was gonna make him change and instead if anything, her betrayal of him hardens him more into being the He-Man woman hater. (laughs) Rosie, what did you think? Well, I found it interesting when he, in the beginning, was like, you're not my type. 
because you're single, you know, <laughs> he, he did not want attachments. That's why he hooked up with Solange Demetrios because she had a husband. She, he didn't have to stay with her. He could just move on with his life and everything was fine. But you know, Vesper legitimately, I feel like she legitimately stole his heart and was everything that he was not looking for. And he fell for it. And she ended up betraying him in the end but I kind of question whether that was really a betrayal because his life was saved so you know but but it's just it was interesting their their dynamic was fantastic and I love the fact that she was very much her own person she did everything on her own terms yes she was beautiful and charming and Bond kind of pushed her to use her beauty and charm to her advantage and even he even pointed out when he was reading her, where they had that scene where they were totally reading each other for Phil, as they say, <laughs> in the gay community, they read each other for Phil. Let's be real. So, you know, they ran down this list of, you know, uh, you, you do this because of this, you do this because of this, you do this because of this. And one of the things that Bond mentioned was the fact that she dressed slightly masculine and that set that that put off a certain vibe to men to where uh, they didn't take her as seriously as maybe they would, which maybe maybe not i i don't know it, it just it, it stinks that women have to put so much more thought into what they wear to be taken seriously than men do so he was kind of in a way he was kind of pointing out a feminist point which i really like that on the other hand she but, totally gets him back though with the suit jacket like oh that and yeah. that was one of the things i loved i love that, that, that scene <laughs> that the film definitely, you know, gives gives her these opportunities to, you know, say like, hey, you know, it works both ways. And that and I thought that was that was really important for this film to re reestablish um, Bond as a as a not as misogynistic character and also the genre itself. You know, like they they really went out of their way to to make her an interesting character and to to offer for every one of these instances where Bond says, like, I need you to look pretty for this reason, then she's like, well, fuck you. <laughs> she's I, like, well, I need you to look pretty for this reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's great. Well, I think that, um, first of all, I should say right now, I should have said at the start, there are going to be spoilers with this one. We try not to spoil endings, but this one, there's no way we can't mm -hmm. talk about this movie and not have spoilers. So I'm going to put the spoiler tag on it because there's no way to talk about Vesper without talking about spoilers. Now, I want to be clear that for secret agents, especially in this era, but pretty much in general, emotional attachments are a liability. Mm -hmm. So let's be clear that there is that. And I've always taken Bond's misogyny as a cultivated form of self-preservation, because if he falls for someone, that's a liability to him and a liability to them. And we know that throughout Bond's career, he's only fallen for two women. I mentioned this before. Vesper Lind, Tracy Draco, who becomes Tracy Bond. Both of them die. OK, so there is that. So I find Vesper incredibly infuriating because I secretly like that there's a woman that can go toe to toe with Bond and like can handle him. But I also secretly don't like it because I know what's going to happen. I just know that this has got disaster written all over it and I can see him falling for her. So like the film is very, very good at manipulating your emotions with when it comes to Vesper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
One of the things I like about her turn, though, like when you see, you know, she's like, as we sort of knew from the beginning, she's an independent person who has her own agenda. And why should we be surprised that her agenda includes evil? Like, you know, that that shouldn't we we should have been expecting this. But um, I think one of the things I like about her turn is that you don't have this like bizarre cartoonish moment where like the mask comes off and suddenly like oh no I was just pretending to be this nice vulnerable girl and I'm actually this like evil bitch underneath and I'm only going to reference Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade once but it's like like that moment you know when you realize that Elsa is actually a Nazi and she's like but you should have listened to your father and it's like this like oh no the mask is off and she's evil and like I really (laughs) like that in part of this reveal of you know Vesper actually working working with the bad guys that that there isn't that moment of her saying like oh I'm actually this completely different person and you never figured it out she still seems like the same person you know she still seems like she is someone who is complicated and vulnerable and you know really did care about Bond and that it like it is all of those things and she's also working for the secret villain network like and i i like that they didn't have to change her and make her like a a cartoonish version of evil woman in order Mm -hmm. to make that turn believable so props props to casino royale for that the shower scene is one of my favorite moments of of daniel craig's just because it's a moment where you get to see him be vulnerable. And I'm curious from both of you whether you think she's totally playing him in that scene or if there's if there's some truth to her that she's she might not be a murderer and this killing part might be legitimately hard for her. Or do you think she's playing him like the whole time? I don't think she was playing him the whole time. I. I think that that there was a part of her that actually did genuinely care about him, but she still had a job to do. And she was eventually able to separate herself enough to do her job and to betray him. But in that moment, I I think I think you're right. I think maybe, you know, she's used to doing the secret agent work, except for maybe the killing part, because, you know, she was an accountant. So she dealt with money. She dealt with finances. She dealt with the corporate side of being a double agent not necessarily the physical side where you're you know fighting the bad guys and killing them and you know things of that nature so i think in that moment yes i think that was a legit moment where she was processing what had just happened and um and he was there and i I feel like maybe he even understood where she was coming from because he had to kill a person for the first time at one point too so he could relate to how she was feeling and was able to comfort her in that moment. That shower scene is probably the, the most tender moment of all the bond films of every minute of every bond film ever made is that shower scene. I think she was legitimately falling for him. I think she, her idea of what she was going to do was, okay, I'm going to finish my mission, but then I'll get together with Bond after my mission's over with. I think that that's kind of where, what she was thinking. But I don't know if I could forgive Vesper. You know, the betrayals just sting so much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and it, you know, definitely gives you a very particular kind of morality attached to that person. 
like all those confrontations where, you know, she's, you know, upset about losing the money and Bond is, you know, like, oh, you're sorry? Like, how about you attach, you know, the rest of the sentence to that sorry? You know, I'm sorry that this, you know, evil maniac is going to continue funding terrorism throughout the world. And, you know, his his sense of his responsibility for for those people and what it would mean if she gave that money to somebody who was going to fund, you know, murder. Like, you know, I, I don't think it's even what the betrayal, the personal betrayal would have been. It would have been like a worldview of, you know, oh, well, that's not, that blood isn't on my hands or I, you know, I need the money or like, or whatever her justification is for, for being involved with, with these evil creeps. I think that her reason for being involved was her previous man. I think that, that, that she was involved with, and again, I watched this a little while ago. So I didn't, we, we, it's been a couple of weeks. I watched it right after the last one, but I think she was involved with a, uh, someone on the, the other side in Algeria or something. Yeah. Am I remember, She's remembering wearing that right? an Algerian love knot that yeah. she eventually and, takes off. Yeah. And so that, that, that her heart belongs to him and she, she's all about doing it for the man and not for the cause is what I felt. And then when she finally mm -hmm. takes off the Algerian love knot, it's because she no longer loves him she loves bond right that was kind of my take on it okay <sighs> oh the mask is off and she's evil and like i really <laughs> like that in part of this reveal of you know vesper actually working working with the bad guys that that there isn't that moment of her saying like oh i'm actually this completely different person and you never figured it out she still seems like the same person. You know, she still seems like she is someone who is complicated and vulnerable and, you know, really did care about Bond and that it like it is all of those things and she's also working for the Secret Villain Network. Like and I I like that they didn't have to change her and make her like a cart a cartoonish version of evil woman in order mm -hmm. to make that turn believable. So props, props to Casino Royale for that. The shower scene is one of my favorite moments of, of Daniel Craig's just because it's a moment where you get to see him be vulnerable. And I'm curious from both of you whether you think she's totally playing him in that scene or if there's, if there's some truth to her that she's, she might not be a murderer and this killing part might be legitimately hard for her or do you think she's playing him like the whole time i don't think she was playing him the whole time i i think that that there was a part of her that actually did genuinely care about him but she still had a job to do and she was eventually able to separate herself enough to do her job and to betray him but in that moment i i think i think you're right i think maybe you know she's used to doing the secret agent work except for maybe the killing part because you know she was an accountant so she dealt with money she dealt with finances she dealt with the corporate side of being a double agent not necessarily the physical side where you're you know fighting the bad guys and killing them and you know things of that nature so i think in that moment yes 
I think that was a legit moment where she was processing what had just happened and, um, and he was there and I, I feel like maybe he even understood where she was coming from because he had to kill a person for the first time at one point too. So he could relate to how she was feeling and was able to comfort her in that moment. That shower scene is probably the, the most tender moment of all the Bond films of every minute of every Bond film ever made is that shower scene. I think she was legitimately falling for him. I think she, her idea of what she was going to do was, okay, I'm going to finish my mission, but then I'll get together with Bond after my mission's over with. I think that that's kind of where, what she was thinking, but I don't know if I could forgive Vesper, you know, the betrayals just stings so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, you know, definitely gives you a very particular kind of morality attached to that person. Like all those confrontations where, you know, she's, you know, upset about losing the money and Bond is, you know, like, oh, you're sorry. Like, how about you attach, you know, the rest of the sentence to that? Sorry, you know, I'm sorry that this, you know, evil maniac is going to continue funding terrorism throughout the world. And, you know, his his sense of his responsibility for for those people and what it would mean if she gave that money to somebody who was going to fund, you know, murder. Like, you know, I, I don't think it's even what the betrayal, the personal betrayal would have been. It would have been like, a worldview of, you know, oh, well, that's not, that blood isn't on my hands, or I, you know, I need the money, or like, or whatever her justification is for, for being involved with, with these evil creeps. I think that her reason for being involved was her previous man, someone on the, the other side in Algeria or something. Yeah, she's wearing an Algerian love knot that she eventually takes off. Yeah. And so that 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 her heart belongs to him and she she's all about doing it for the man and not for the cause is what I felt. And then when she finally mm-hmm. takes off the Algerian love knot, it's because she no longer loves him. She loves Bond. Right. Hmm. That was kind of my take on it. I wanted to talk about ego seeing the word ego or arrogance show up like clockwork about every 10 minutes in the film and really addressing this point of Bond's character, which I feel like Q in some playful moments, you know, sort of tells Bond that, you know, maybe the, you know, don't shoot first and ask questions later or M is often trying to rein him in and Money Penny also is scolding him playfully, but you never really get a sense of anybody addressing this part of his personality and it's interesting seeing it come up so many different ways in this film m early on says something like arrogance and self-awareness rarely go together there's some a moment where vesper goes into the elevator by herself and she's like there's not enough room for you me and your ego (laughs) it's all over the place and i think it's interesting that they were teasing him and also being critical of him in so many moments in this film when 
in some ways, Bond's ego is the most attractive, most interesting part of him. That you know, the part that draws us to him as viewers is his arrogance and that he's so confident and so suave and knows what he's doing and can slip in and out of dangerous situations and is reckless and gets away with it. His ego seems to be one of the main attractive points about him, you know, for audiences. And to see it criticized so many times in the film, I thought was really interesting. Well, this is Bond becoming Bond once again. This is mm-hmm. a, this is the earliest Bond story in both Fleming's writing and in the movies. As we said, it's a prequel to everything else. This is Bond becoming Bond, and clearly his weakness, his biggest weakness as an agent, as far as MI6 is concerned, is his ego, mm-hmm. right? So in this one... I think we're seeing him have to deal with a bunch of things he's going to have to get over. He's going to have to kill people and get over it. So that's the first thing to get out of the way fairly early on. He doesn't have that much trouble with it, but it's clear that it affects him a little bit, mm-hmm. him becoming a double O. Two, him having to overcome his ego. Or, he never does. He tamps it down and he'll, <laughs> he will have a big ego for the rest of the Bond films and it will get him into trouble many, many times in the future. And three, no entanglements with women, no emotional entanglements with women. And that's what this movie's all about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Luck yeah. did not be a lady in this one. <laughs> I wanted to give a shout out to Madam du- Judy Dench because she's always fabulous in every film. I just want to put that out there. And I love the fact that she was never afraid to put him in his place or even threaten his life if he stepped out of line. Like she was like, if you ever, if you ever break into my apartment again, I will have you killed. <laughs> <laughs> and she just no bones about it. That was it. Period. The end. And he knew she was serious. Yeah. What's interesting about M. M was a man in the books and M was a man in the movies until in real life, the head of MI6 eventually became a a woman, uh, got that job at some point in time. And around the same time, they recast a woman in that role in the films. And that was Judy Dench. And I'm so glad she has stuck with the role for all this time. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, we, I guess we're not going to to say we're not, anything. We're not talking about anything that happens after this one. <laughs> yes. No, but I am glad that she, she stuck with it through the transition from Brosnan to Craig. Because I, I think, I mean, you were talking about ten, tender moments in the Bond franchise. The shower scene between Bond and Vesper is one, but the moments in Skyfall between Bond and M are also uh, some, some of his best moments, I think, as a character. We will do Skyfall at some point in the future. Uh, we will be covering Quantum of Solace. We will probably take a break from Bond after that for a little while, but not forever. We will get back to this character. There's so much more to explore with Bond. In the meantime, I wanted to say, please like and subscribe. Give us five stars and a good review in the iTunes store if you like us. And you can write to us at GC8Podcast. That's Letter G, letter C, number eight for Geek Channel 8. GC8podcast at gmail.com. 
And I would like to thank my panelists, guest hosts this week from the Hopkins Center for the Arts, Johanna. Thanks so much, everyone. And from the Black and Bluegrass Roller Girls, Rosie. Thanks for having me. You will hear us next time on GC8.